Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for the ability to understand and grasp and enjoy and treasure the things that you have to say to us today. We thank you that we have been able to study our Lord Jesus and see how he encountered people and the responses of those people and the way in which you used him just shocks us. So I pray we do not lose awe, but that we would live in awe and that we would respond properly. Lord, I thank you for those who are here. I ask, Lord, if there's someone here today who is without hope, without the hope of the gospel, who's not treasuring Christ, who's never really understood who he was or what he's done for us, I pray, Lord, that you would um, open their hearts to see that they might believe and treasure him above everything. In Christ's name, amen. You know, it's not uncommon to um, struggle with trusting God. That's just a reality that you and I will face in our lives. There are some of you here, you probably do have doubts, and maybe sometimes in certain churches, any sign of doubt was kind of like a sign of weakness. You think, I'm supposed to be strong, and so I shouldn't be doubting. And um, the reality is, is uh, sometimes a catastrophic event, sometimes some kind of ailment, some kind of sickness uh, can cause some sort of doubt. Uh, financial difficulties can do that. Uh, a relationship that is like you're struggling with, that you think, I shouldn't be struggling with that, is it, something that can be that. When you're younger, it could be like something like a, a test in school where you're thinking, I've studied and yet I have a certain amount of doubt about whether God's going to help me, remind me of the things that I have to do and all those things. But it, 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 oftentimes doubt just kind of, it hits us in a variety of different ways. Most of the time when I think I'm doubting, I'm not saying that I don't believe that the Bible is true. I, I still would say, I believe the Bible's true. I would still say, like almost like the Apostles' Creed, I would say, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, who was born of a Virgin Mary. And I could go through like this fundamental statement of faith. I could quote passages and say, I believe that passage. And yet, I would struggle with unbelief. And I think that's important to say. Because even though I may believe like everything about what God the Father did, what the Son did, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts and lives and all of the things in the redemptive work of Christ and that God's wrath was satisfied on, on uh, our behalf, all of that stuff, I could believe all those things. And I could even like in my mind think, I believe that Christ dealt with my sins in the past that he is dealing with my sins for the future, that I have like heaven uh, to look forward to and have certainty of those who put their faith and trust in Christ will be saved. I could have all that stuff in my mind and in my heart, and one thing can go wrong in my life, and I'm struggling with unbelief. What's up with that? That doesn't even make sense. I, I, I could almost be at that point where it would be like, God's forgotten me. You know, it's like, what? Come on, man, what's wrong with you? Why do you not just 
embrace the truth of like God is not just dealing with your past and future, but your present. That he's, He is with you and watching out for you in your present. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And it, this was probably one of the earliest Bible verses I committed to memory. Is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your paths straight. Or make straight your paths, depending on the version. But I think where I struggle in this <laughs> is whatever that straight path is may not look like the path I envisioned. That, that's where I would get off track. Because I would want it to be like, you know, I have this thing in mind, this way, this road, this journey that I'm going to take. When you think about the lives of your children or grandchildren or spouse or parents or friends or neighbor or your church or the country that you're in, do you, do you, like if you're sitting around like fearful, if you're sitting around in kind of this state of unbelief, does that not say something about the fact that you are really struggling with unbelief? I mean, we probably should say, I understand that. I know what that is like. We find a man today in a desperate situation. And we see like what it means to have feeble faith. And maybe you need to ask yourself, like, is feeble faith saving faith? Is that because some people would want to be like really strong in faith? Is a feeble faith a saving faith? I think you'll see this today and hopefully it'll help you understand better, as I hope it does me, that that cry, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief is an act of faith. It is probably more close to the way in which you live and I live. And it is important to see that. Remember, Jesus uh, had talked about his death and resurrection, and the disciples had been struggling with that. And uh, they didn't really, I mean, Peter spoke up, but it was like, this is not the way. We didn't think the Messiah would come this way. We didn't think he would face these things. I mean, we're looking for a Messiah to have a good, like, life and bring about a good life for us. And yet, they're struggling with that. And so he takes this inner circle, these three disciples, up on a cloud. And he was transfigured before them. You remember the law and the embodiment of the law and the prophets? Moses and Elijah are there. And they are in agreement, but then they pass away. And the final revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ, is before them. And so I think it's important to understand, they are in this place of awe. Jesus is transfigured before them. They're in this place of awe, and then they have to come down. They do not come alone. He comes down with them. So they've left this place, what you almost could say, like a vertical perspective to come down into a horizontal world, and things are going to not to be easy. The chasm between heaven and earth, you can see it as very broad here. Almost like, there's a picture in my mind, like there's this brief sojourn up the mountain. But we realize that there's no crown without the cross and no glory without the shame. That's kind of the way 
I would look at that and see it. And so Peter, James, and John, and Jesus come down the mountain. And although they had this dramatic experience, they're about to go back down into the valley where life is lived. Where there's difficulties and struggles and all of those things. That's kind of probably how your life has been. Have you had those times? Those places of like the mountaintop where you saw and experienced this wonderful picture of who God is and what He's done. And there's so much joy there. But then you have to go back to life. And life has its setbacks and its difficulties. And you have to learn to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the journey you're on. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now this starts in Mark 9 with dissension. And what you see is, when they came down, they saw this great crowd, and around them, there were these scribes arguing with the disciples. And they're arguing with them because, uh, I think, probably, the scribes are kind of like a great predator searching out prey. They wait for the perfect opportunity. And that perfect opportunity is when Jesus is not around. The scribes are like attorneys. They're academics. They understand the law. And then they're talking to these hardworking kind of small businessmen people. These guys that don't have like this kind of education to sit and fight and argue and do all of those things. It's not a fair fight. These guys were called from like their nets to follow Jesus. They were fishermen. And so... They attack when Jesus is gone. I guess they didn't know that Jesus said it would be more or better for a man rather than like mess with one of his little ones, one of his disciples, it'd be better to tie a millstone around your neck and be plunged into the sea than to jack with my people. But they did, and it would have been better for them. But as you move forward, Jesus shows up. Of course... They're probably about to build their case and destroy the disciples, in a sense, before the crowds. But as soon as Jesus comes in, everybody's like lost. I mean, they're gone. They're, they're moving on over to the one whom they really kind of like think. I mean, he is sufficient. Now, verse 15 says, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to meet him, that is Jesus, and greeted him. And Jesus asked the scribes, and it's hard to see this here, but it that's what is uh, pretty clear from if you'll read and study this. He's speaking to the scribes and he says, what are you arguing about with them? Like, what are you coming after these disciples with? What are you saying to them? And really, I, maybe they've learned enough to know that um, they can't really argue with Jesus. And so it's like they're silent. They don't say anything. There's no response from them. But then, and if you think about it, like I said, we're thinking about this concept of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. In the face of that, there's this struggle, this dissension. Really, it's tied to unbelief. And then we see a despairing voice here. It's like this one lone voice breaks through the silence. In verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. 
What happens here? I mean, this is a despairing situation. That's what I would say. If I were looking at this, you'd think, man, this is really, really difficult. There is this man who is facing one of the hardest circumstances that I could think about. One of the gospel writers says he knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on me. He is at the end of his rope. He has been for a long time. And you can understand. You'll see later that the demons are wrecking this man and his son's life. This son, in this moment, he has seizures. And you know, the modern medicine wouldn't be there, but it's not just the seizure. It's what's behind it. It's this demonic, these demonic spirits working to try to destroy this little boy. The father has probably done everything you can imagine. He has exhausted all resources. He's done all that he can. And you could put yourself there if you've had children or had some child that was close to you and you're watching this child and you think to yourself, what am I going to do? He says, so I ask your disciples, disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. You know, these scribes were going to use this to discount the whole thing. And this man, thinking he could come to Jesus, probably thought, I can go to the disciples too. But they were unable to do anything for him. He maybe had his hopes up, perhaps for the last time, to consider that maybe someone could do something to rescue him from this horrible situation. Verse 19 says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, you could say he could talk about this whole everybody there. I mean, he might be talking about everyone there. The only thing is, is like when this term is used, and it's used in Mark five times, it's always associated with the crowds. And so whether you want to put the scribes and the crowds together or however you wanted to look at that, you understand that this generation is struggling with belief. There is hardness of heart filling this generation. It's not that I think the disciples don't believe. But they are still, there's battles there going on within them. They are not able to overcome. And in part, I think, because of their lack of praying, which is kind of a lack of faith. But at the end of the day, that is the situation you find yourself in. You have in this concept, in this truth about this, or this prayer, you could say, of Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Around this story is the dissent, there's dissension, there's despair, and then there's like disbelief which kind of starts in verse 19 and then really is like we're zooming in here as we go to verse, through verse 19 to verse 20, 21, 22, and, and think through this. It says, Bring him to me, Jesus says. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So this spirit actively like is rejecting like the fact that he is in or frightened by the presence of Jesus. As we see throughout Mark, there's this battle that goes on, this struggle that is taking place. And so he begins to just attack this boy's body again. And the boy is on the ground. 
And if you've ever seen that, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, it is a shocking sight. Verse 21 and 22. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him down in the fire and into water to destroy him. I mean, you can think about that. When you're looking at things and you're considering stuff like this, you think sometimes asking that question helps him verbalize really the depth of the situation and helps us understand how dark this situation is, how hard it's been, what it's been like for this man to have a child in this place. It's not just that this child is deaf and mute. And it's not just that he has this this struggle with like, falling on the ground and like seizing up. This demon is seeking to destroy him. This, seek, this demon is seeking to drown him. This, this de- demon is seeking to cause such violent things to happen that he's burned up by fire. One author wrote, the demon degrades this little boy until he grinds his teeth and foams at the mouth like a rabid animal. He seeks to disable and distort the image of God by making the boy mute or stiff and lifeless. Then it tries to destroy the image of God altogether by burning or drowning him. Could you understand what it would be like to be there in that moment? Maybe you face some of that. Maybe you've experienced that at some level where you've seen such a hard and desperate situation. And that's where this man is. And he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. If you can do anything. The the struggle there is like you understand he spent his whole life probably physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually. He is exhausted. He is beat down. He is struggling. And he's praying, and and really he's been a caretaker. If you've ever taken care of someone for a long period of time, this situation seems like a 24-7 struggle. And really, he's probably been all over trying to find relief. Maybe even his heart's been broken a thousand times, trying to fix the problem. We can see here disbelief. But he still comes to Jesus. He's still coming to him. And verse 23 says, And Jesus said to him, If you can? What do you mean if I can? If I can? Are, you, are, are we seriously saying this? Jesus is speaking to him almost with astonishment. Jesus has spent the last several years traveling throughout the countryside And he's doing all types of things. He's overcoming demons and disease and death and disorder. Jesus is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. And certainly in his compassion. If he can, is not the question. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Myers wrote, faith recognizes that there is nothing that can hold Jesus back. He is both willing and able. Edwards wrote, The Father has only the mustard seed beginnings of faith. If you can, replies Jesus in surprise, the problem is not divine unwillingness or divine inability, but human unbelief. 
Edwards also wrote, the sole bridge between the frail humanity and the all-sufficiency of God is faith, the means by which the power of Jesus, his divine authority and legitimacy becomes effective in human life is faith. This statement that everything is possible to him who believes must appear to the Father as an elusive hope. However, for faith, he needs to heal his son is a faith he does not have in his mind. He thinks, I don't have this faith. Or so he thinks. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's not saying that he like, has a perfect faith. He's not faking it. He's just saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. My faith is small. Grow my faith enough to make you do something. That's the idea you see here. He's praying for the Lord to help him overcome his unbelief. Does the Bible have people like this? People that you respect in the Bible that look like this? Think of Abraham. He trusted God. He believed Him. He trusted in uh, it says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He trusted in the promise. He grew strong in faith. But he battled. Even when later he would go to Egypt, he asked his own wife to say, you're, say you're my um, sister to save my life. It's a sign of unbelief. He does it again when he uh, faces Abimelech, and it's a sign of unbelief. And you're like, well... He's not a Christian. When he had a moment of weakness, he wasn't a Christian. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was not tied to whether he was like a, a person of faith. He just battled with unbelief. He struggled in those ways. It's common. You know what religious people would say? Let's start with secular people. Secular people think that the reason their life is the way it is is because they made all the right decisions. You know what religious people say? My life is the way that it is because I've done all the right things before God. You know what the Bible says? The Bible's filled with people that say, I believe, help my unbelief. The Bible is filled with people who are faced with difficulties who have doubting hearts, who are not the perfect examples of faith. Even in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, with all those people listed, it is riddled with people that believed but had to pray, help my unbelief. Tim Keller states, the first step is not holiness but helplessness. Some people have so much confidence in their own faith. Ephesians 2 says, faith is a gift from God. This man prays for faith. He believes God has to help him with his faith. Verse 25 and 26. And when Jesus saw the crowd was running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, kind of rushing it along, saying, 
You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, he came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. Jesus quickly addresses this issue. He rebukes the demon. He names him, he calls him out, and sends him away. But here's the other hard thing. You ready? This man's most prized possession and most difficult thing in life, but he would give anything for, though, is now there. And it looks like to everyone that he is dead. He takes this step of faith with Jesus, and it costs him, it appears, his most prized possession. Oftentimes, that, I mean, when you're thinking about your life, you know, and you're coming to the Lord, and you know your weakness and frailty, and you lay down everything before Him, and you think, what is going on in this moment? If you stop and pause, and there must have been enough of a pause that everybody's saying, like, the boy's dead. Yeah, he, he got rid of the demon, but he killed the kid. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. This one who was deaf, blind, struggled with seizures, he rescued him. He delivered him from the powers of darkness and all of the ailments that he experienced. Could you imagine the father? What would that be like years since he was a little kid being thrown into the fire and into the water thinking he might drown or get burned up? He had scars probably all over him. Facing all of those things for all of that time, watching his child in such a state. And nothing else is said. But that had to be the most shocking thing that you could ever see. And to watch Jesus' compassion and His power on display married together is a beautiful scene. Then we go to verse 28 and 29. When He had entered the house, His disciples asked Him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What about their unbelief? Or what, what if you said they had misplaced belief? Just misplaced belief. This would, this would get me. You ready? Maybe they trusted in the process and not the power. Like one of the things for me is like with this church, it's like we, we have processes, like we have a process to train you. We give you a study guide. We have discussion. You hear the sermon. You have community groups that are like really centered on application. We try to build relationships that you can like both like lift other people up. They can lift you up at different stages of life. I love the process. The process makes sense to me. I've seen it work. 
But the process without the power, that's a frightening thing. The Apostle Paul would preach in his letters and pray. He would preach and pray. Because he's trusting God's Word, but he's also praying for God's power to bring the Word to life. To bring dead people to life. Part of the disciples' problems here are not that they don't like trust Jesus, but there's an element where there must be some misplaced trust because they are not on their knees praying. Our prayer for this church is, Lord, teach them the Scriptures that they might know You, know Your ways and understand, and then what we should be doing and be better about doing is in faith also praying, Spirit, work in hearts and transform lives. They needed to be praying. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let me recenter my faith in You. Let me know that You alone are my help and my hope. Mark Gibson's sermon introduced me to a comments made by J.C. Ryle, and I want to read those to you. We see in those words a vivid picture of the heart of many a true Christian. Few indeed are to be found among believers in whom trust and doubt, hope and fear do not exist side by side. Nothing is perfect in a child of God so long as he is in the body. His knowledge and love and humility are all more or less defective and mingled with corruption. And as it is with his other graces, so it is with faith. He believes, and yet he has about him a remainder of unbelief. What shall we do with our faith? We must use it. Weak, trembling, doubting, feeble, feeble as it may be, we must use it. We must not wait, wait until it is great, perfect, and mighty, but like the man before us, Turn it to account and hope that one day it will be more strong. Lord, he said, I believe. What shall we do with our unbelief? We must resist it and pray against it. We must not allow it to keep us back from Christ. We must take it to Christ as we take all other sins and infirmities and cry to him for deliverance. Like the man before us, we must cry, Lord, help my unbelief. We leave this passage with comfortable feelings. Greater is he that is for us than all those against us. Satan is strong, busy, active, malicious, but Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost if we come to God by him. From the devil, from sin, and from the world. Let us possess our souls in patience. Jesus still lives and will not let Satan pluck us out of his hand. Let's pray. Father, we ask for you to grow our faith, increase our faith. Lord, we are needy. We are people who are coming unfaithful, weak, unstable, weary, and we need you. We ask that you would help us today. In Christ's name, amen.